Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Crux. How you doing, Mike? Terrific. How are you? I, I wish our listeners could see you. You got a beautiful Christmas plant behind you and everything. And I do. You put me in the season, man. It's All really, right. There you go. All back right. The halls. So we have two great guests today on The Crux, two people I've worked with and I, I really admire, Jen Prozek, who, of course, lots of people in, in the business know one of the really pioneering women establishing her own firm, Prozic Partners. And we're going to talk to Jen about that and, and also about ESG practice there. With, with one Mark, of her partners. With one yeah. of her partners, Mark Kohler, who former financial journalist and, and really smart about these topics. But before we do that, let's talk a little news. Sure. And I, I want to talk about, of course, you know, it's overshadowed even by some other things, but it's a big story. Facebook being hit with the antitrust lawsuit by the FTC in more than 40 states. You know, we go back to the breakup of AT&T, you know, Big Bell, but this is a, as big a story and potentially significant ramifications. So as I said, 40 states signed on to the federal lawsuit. Yep. Suit states that Facebook's acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp unfairly eliminated competition, and they called for the company to be broken up. Now, nearly a decade ago, the FTC didn't have objections to Facebook's acquisitions of these apps. However, it's now reversed course, and it's got some bipartisan support behind a decision to sue Facebook. The FTC has also sent investigatory subpoenas to Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet. The reasoning behind Facebook's antitrust lawsuit is that the company's acquisition strategy is built around buying out potential competitors. And in response, Facebook has remained defiant, calling the antitrust suit revisionist history in its public statements and claiming that companies like Instagram and WhatsApp, which of course are the acquisitions in question, are where they are due to Facebook's quote-unquote investments. And the general counsel of Facebook also noted that breaking up the company will be hard to do, sounds like a song, and that no American antitrust enforcer has ever brought a case like this before and for good reason. So the FTC itself seems to be relying on the communications of the company and its CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, and parts of this case, including some emails that contain Zuckerberg calling Instagram a quote-unquote threat and in one instance, explaining motivation for buying the app as a way to, quote unquote, neutralize a potential competitor. Mike, these things are hugely complex, as you know. But what do you think of this? And what do you think of the Facebook response to the federal lawsuit? Well, first of all, I, I think on its face, this is kind of interesting. I mean, so the Obama administration approved two of these acquisitions in mm -hmm. terms of Instagram in 2012 and then WhatsApp in 2014. So I worry on one level about the consistency of the position the government has taken. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I don't see a lot of discussion of that being put on the table, even by, by Facebook. 
At the same time, clearly, if there is evidence, I mean, I was always forewarned, and I think other executives, mm -hmm. you were probably forewarned when you were at GE about using words like control or <laughs> dominate. You know, the lawyers are, you know, they're out there. And, and what you don't want to do is put yourself in a position where under any circumstances are you viewed as taking an effort where you are manipulating the marketplace or trying to control the marketplace. So, so statements like that aren't good, but I think where the defense lies is the inconsistency of government actions around exactly. this. The flip side of that, I understand why people are concerned or, uh, you know, if I look at all of these things, I know, uh, are you on Facebook? Gary? I am, but I don't. And, you know, I, and are you on Instagram? I am not. Do you use WhatsApp? Very much. Okay. So, 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 you know, somewhere in the scheme of things, you know, they know you're a cyclist. They know you, you love uh, the boss. They know you love the New York Yankees. They probably even know what you had for breakfast. <laughs> I bet they do. I bet you they know, do. And I think that's where the cautionary tale in all of this and the warp and weft of fabric that we're dealing with with all of these tech companies is at some point the ability to traffic and overlay pieces of information so that they know every bit of that we do and that, you know, in some of these, I mean, we go to other companies with, that have search engines and the like or apps that we use that literally track where we're situated. Exactly. So they know where we live, they know where we interact, they know who we interact with. All of that could be very, very dangerous and, and invasive to our privacy. Uh, one more question on this for you, Mike. Facebook has been somewhat defiant particularly after the 2016 election yeah. and trying to deny any kind of involvement in, in the, I guess, hacking and you know misbehavior in that election. Zuckerberg hasn't been the best witness on Capitol Hill. Yeah. There's all kinds of allegations of conservative bias, although that is not borne out by, by the facts. How much of this do you think is political or just the impact that Facebook has had on our society? I think it's more impact, you know, yeah. I, I, and I think that they're not the only ones, but I think that there are a lot of Silicon Valley companies that are naive in how they play out their interactions with government. Mm -hmm. And that's undoubtedly tripped them up. I think early on, they, they weren't very transparent. I think there are certain things that they did and they didn't know what the impact ultimately would be, but their answers to questions both to the media and to government largely have been unsatisfactory because mm -hmm. they seem like they're, they're trying to harbor things that they once did and trying to kind of whitewash the avenues that they're walking down today. So, yeah, I I'm with you on it. I, you know, hundred year old George Schultz this week had a op-ed in I think the Washington post about trust and, mm -hmm. and the things that trust can do and things that trust when you lose it will prevent. And I think ultimately with Facebook, it comes down to that. They have lost the trust of a lot of people. And, you know, so, so there you go. And I highly recommend that Schultz piece. 
quickly on to a another topic that has gotten a lot of traffic this week out of out of nowhere an op-ed this past weekend in the wall street journal on the editorial page written by a joseph epstein who previously was a professor at northwestern advising dr joseph epstein no you know the, <laughs> the, the funny thing is he holds a bachelor degree as high as you know which is where i am mike you know that's yeah. and oh here we go mike's gonna tell us about his no, no. How, how many how, okay no no and people who have advanced degree should be proud of him and, and, and this is the the craziness of this op-ed there's so many crazy things about it in, in any event this uh epstein fellow advised jill biden the first lady elect if that's a word or a phrase that she should drop the dr biden from her name because she's not a medical doctor but rather holds a doctorate in education she also holds by the way two master's degrees mm-hmm. And she received her doctorate in 2007 from the University of Delaware. She has also taught English at a community college in Virginia, which is something I understand she wants to continue to do while serving as first lady. Epstein wrote in the op-ed, the PhD may once have held prestige, but that has been diminished by the erosion and seriousness and the relaxation of standards. You don't need to read on. This is ridiculous. (laughs) It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, this guy is jealous. He has it in for for Jill Biden. I don't know what is his problem. As as kiddo, called her kiddo. Yeah. I don't know what his problem is, but anybody who goes through and earns a doctorate technically as well as viably has a right to refer to themselves as doctor in my book. Yeah. And and I wonder if this fellow has a problem with Dr. Henry Kissinger, who has holds a doctorate and been referred to as doctor. One thing I will add here is Paul Jigot, who is the head of the op-ed page or the editorial page at the journal, defended, of course, there were claims of that the Epstein was being misogynistic, and it's just, it is silly, topic for an op-ed in the first place. And that seemed to be the defense that Jago came up with, which was, and he blamed the, the Biden campaign. And why did they get upset at such a minor issue? Well, if it's such a minor issue, why did you publish an op-ed? Why'd um, you write about it in the Wall Street Journal? In the first place. Ridiculous. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So let's have some fun now. This is our last episode of 2020. 2020. I don't know. If, is that a good thing, Mike? Is it? Yeah, I, I was asked earlier, do you have one word for 2020? And, and, and it was like, not in polite company. <laughs> you know, at, at the end of the day, I guess the, the one word that I'm that I'm glad about 2020, it's done. It's over. It's, uh, yeah, done would be a good word. <laughs> done would be a good word. So I came up with this crazy idea. These guys tried to dissuade me from it. But nonetheless, I, I never listened to good reason. Picking a communicator of the year. And, you know, Mike, this is dangerous. A few years ago, PR Week picked United Airlines CEO Oscar Munoz as the communicator of the year. And that year. was before the Dr. Dow incident. And then he stepped in it, right, in, in the Dr. Dow thing and clearly got the communications on that wrong. So I'm going to start here. I think I've got a delightful one and, and try and maybe counter some of the bad karma about 2020. And this was a person who I thought appealed to both sides of the aisle politically and just an uplifting, in so many ways, person. Also, just part of the national conversation during the year among journalists and others. And, and it's Dolly Parton. I, you may think that's a strange choice. I hear nine to five in the back <laughs> of my head. So here, listen, here, here's, my, here's my thing. So she's got a book called 
Song Teller, which is a Kirkus book of the year. There was a podcast about her, Dolly Parton's America, that won the Peabody Award for one of the best podcasts of the year. Gave a million dollars to, I think it was Moderna, right? To help with vaccine research. Yes, absolutely. So what does this all have to do with communications? Left, right, you know, all of this heat and fire we've heard this year, all through that, she was just determined to bring joy to people in the country and the world. And, you know, with the the vaccine, and she's given away something like 3 million books to kids too, by Mm -hmm. the way. So maybe I'm picking a person of the year, but it also relates to the way she even got mimicked the other week on uh, Saturday Night Live. Uh, I mean, Melissa Villasenor did a a great job. I I was amazed. It was really eerie how, how, so in any event, I'm going to pick her. So, as my so that's your communicator of the year. I'm, I'm going with it, Mike. And so, you know, I, and the thing is, is this year was jam packed with lots of different choices. I had yes. To, yes. You know, so, so you think about the coronavirus, right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, particularly in the United States, paid attention to Dr. Fauci. Mm-hmm. You know, he could have been a good choice. Yeah, yeah. I thought we could about have Fauci. Had a, we could have even done like what Time Magazine did one year, you know, and it was the Ebola fighters. Oh, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. it had a whole list of people in that category. And then there were lots of communicators that made life interesting around U.S. politics. Okay. You know, and one could argue because he won the presidency, it could be Joe Biden, or maybe even better, it could be these, you know, these civil servants and elected officials that stood up for democratic principles. And, exactly. you know, we talked about Gabriel Sterling in On Georgia. The yeah. Yep. And of course his, his, his boss, the secretary of state there, they, they could, maybe it's, the, maybe it's the Supremes, you know, yeah. the Supreme court. <laughs> and then we had racial injustice during the summer. That I was thinking interest, Diana Ross there. You know, right? and there you could have gone to George Floyd or you could have gone to Black Lives Matter. But I'm going to go back to like Time Magazine in 1982 when the first inanimate person of the year (laughs) was chosen, and it was the computer. Was it really? I didn't know that. This year, my communicator of the year is Zoom. Oh, my God. I think it's outstanding. And fundamentally, what it did, it changed our lives. It changed how how we teach in the classroom. It changed how we conduct business. It changed even my family life. I mean, we got, as a family, organized by my oldest daughter, that every other Sunday, we had a family Zoom. We did the same. We did the same. And, 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 you know, I think that in the world that we live in today, where it's becoming hybrid, we need to acknowledge that, I mean, and, and even from a, you know, if you look at from a financial standpoint, I mean, the Zoom stock price a year ago was like 63 bucks. I know it. I, and that, and today it's, it, well, it closed at last Friday, it was over 390 bucks. Sometimes you it's know? better to be lucky than good, Mike. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and if you look at the number of large customers, it literally has Zoomed. So we're going to get letters now from Cisco, WebEx, and Google Teams, and all the other platforms. It's Microsoft Teams. Microsoft Teams, I'm sorry. And I use Microsoft Teams. But but I think that culturally, it was Zoom that sort of led that flight. I I agree with you. There's other technology. I'm just pushing back on you. Okay, but I think it's an excellent choice. I think you did a great job there. Okay, now, this is the last episode of The Crux for Haley McKee. 
our terrific graduate assistant, and we asked Haley to name her Communicator of the Year 2020. Okay. Haley, what'd you come up with? So it's interesting that each of our Communicators of the Year were a little atypical because mine is nameless. Or at least it's very kept wraps to the greater public, myself included. And it is whoever runs the Lincoln Project's Twitter. And (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It just. Excellent. (laughs) So this American Political Action Committee was founded by conservatives, Republicans who have now just joined together to defeat this notion of Trumpism. But of course, trying to put politics aside, we can learn a lot about communications from this account. And in only one year, this account has amassed 2.7 million followers, even surpassed the GOP's account just before Election Day. And I really wanted to bestow this award upon their social strategist because it's really defined political communications, you know, clever witty gifs memes tweets replies all and fast and and very fast that's something that really appeals to my age looping a younger generation into politics and making them more relatable and i think secondly especially in the year that will really go down in infamy 2020 what we need right now is accountability and i think this account has really done that pushing party lines to fight for this mission that they believe to be right. So I think it's been a great year for them and I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon. (laughs) Well, of course we had Steve Schmidt from the Lincoln Project on the crux earlier this year. It's such a good choice. You know, who would have thought the most influential voice in this election to defeat a Republican president would be a group of Republicans. Who would have thought? And I I agree with you, the, the Twitter activity has been smart. They turned ads around, by the way, too. I, I just, you know, so quickly, I was so impressed with that and done in a way that I think got under the president's skin. And several so. times he, he responded <laughs> to the Twitter, called them losers and all this kind of thing. So, which is what you're supposed to do in a political campaign, right? Is draw right. your opponent out. So let, let me summarize here, Haley, for you. So I picked the lovely... Dolly Parton, one of the great human beings. Mike picked the software platform, communications platform, and you went with Nameless. So person, and all are excellent picks for Communicator of the Year. Uh, I had runners up too, as you know. I also played with Springsteen. He's had an amazing year and and similar to Parton in that he spoke to a lot of people on both sides of the political divide and still does. And during the shutdown, and, and he's continuing it, DJing a great show on Sirius XM about uh, American music and, and American life. So thank you. I think you did really well. And thank you for all your support here from Boston University over this semester. You've been terrific. And if anybody out there is listening, you would be very smart to hire this young person. She is, um, you've heard us <laughs> talk about her during the semester and she's got receipts. Let me tell you for the kind of work that she can do. So thank you, Haley. And Happy holidays. Well, thank you. And thank you, Professor Fernandez, BU. It's been a great graduate experience. I I can't believe it's coming to an end. And I've had a blast working on the crux. Terrific. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next year.
Today, Gary and I are thrilled to have with us on the crux two very impressive professionals out of the world of financial communications. One is Jennifer Prosek, the founder and managing partner of Prosek Partners, one of the world's leading financial communications and strategy advisory firms for more than two decades. For much of that time, it has been a go-to firm in the financial services and B2B sectors, serving clients like Capital One, the Carlisle Group, Dun & Bradstreet, Goldman Sachs, State Street. But it also provides a full array of services that run the gamut from integrated marketing to corporate communication communications, investor relations, and transaction services. Joining Jen today is one of her longtime colleagues and a partner at Prosec Partners, Mark Caller has been with the firm for 20 years. Earlier in, in Mark's career, he was a financial reporter in Chicago, London, and New York. He also was a trader on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. In addition to his financial and media expertise, he has counseled clients on navigating the changing world of ESG and impact investing. Jen and Mark, welcome to The Crux. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Let's just jump right into it. You know, given the disruptive nature of 2020, from the pandemic to issues of systemic racism, even to the crazy election in the U.S. and, and, and what all this has done to our economy, how are the two of you doing and how is the firm doing? Well, the two of us are doing well. We've learned to survive together a very long period of time. I always say Mark is my work husband, so it's hard <laughs> to survive a marriage that long. So we're That's good right. At- we survived to thrive. That's right. There you go. Um, there you go. Well, I think like most companies, the beginning of COVID, that March, April period was a bit scary. You know, we had some clients hit the panic button, but very quickly, you know, if you're in strategic corporate communications or crisis communications or financial communications, you got busy very quickly. I mean, if you look at how many private equity firms we represent, for instance, their portfolio companies were in all different arrays of going bankrupt to thriving because of COVID. So it's been a super dynamic year. And I always say, you know, it's it's been a communicator's crisis because when else has leadership had to deal with a health crisis, an economic crisis, a race and inequality crisis, all at the same time. I mean, being a leader and a good communicator right now is tough business. So we're actually really busy helping our senior clients navigate. It is. I I love that phrase. And by the way, Mark and Jen, welcome to the crux. I love that phrase, communicators crisis. And I, I think it's emblematic of the strategic value of good communicators now, both in agencies and in-house. The pandemic has been terrible, but I think it's revealed a lot in some big companies on how important that CCO role or whatever the title is, is to the organization with that horizontal view across the landscape, right, of all the things that were happening coming at us in 2020. So I love that idea of that phrase. I want to talk about Something that's sort of related to that, maybe a little tangential for both of you, because I know you've done a lot of thinking about this, where companies and entrepreneurs in the financial sector, including, I I imagine, your clients, begun to think a little differently about their purpose, about why they exist. I'm a bit of a skeptic on this purpose movement, so I'll I'll say that off the start, but do you see this as a trend? You know, we have the business roundtable. We have all the other things, some agencies that focus solely on purpose as a corporate initiative. Is this a trend or 
What do you think? Is it just a sort of a peak and valley we're going through on purpose? We do represent the Wall Street, right? We represent mm -hmm. global Wall Street, whatever you call that in other areas of the world. And I have never seen in my career more focused by founders and CEOs on race and inequality, diversity, inclusion, ESG, stakeholder capitalism, whatever you want to call it. I think it's partially based on the fact that they've woken up and realized they won't win the talent war without it. And the other reason is that their institutional investors had said, uh, 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 we're not giving you money. And that is bottom line. So all of a sudden, two bottom line things came up. Mm -hmm. Wow, that top person at that place doesn't want to join my firm because they don't see diversity here. Mm -hmm. Or my institutional investor that I'm courting is not really favorable on my ESG track record, whatever it is. So these are very real things. And I think, Gary, you're right to be skeptical, but I will tell you that I've never seen talk go into action more aggressively than this year. You know, they say COVID accelerated everything. The acceleration from, no, I wouldn't even say talk to action because there wasn't even talk from right. almost zero <laughs> action. And again, we're in the laggard space in this field. So. I'd love Mark to comment because Mark really has become quite an ESG right. specialist in our firm and is really working in the trenches on this stuff. Yeah, no, thanks, Jen. And I know, Gary, I understand your skepticism, and I would say a lot of people are skeptics, but it is more than a trend. And I, I would say the skepticism has some roots in that communicators feel like they have to answer every ESG question mm -hmm. that's out there or be, you know, solve the planet, solve the, the problems of the planet. And if you just step back and look at how can you as a communicator in representing your firm, be part of the conversation in some way, mm -hmm. instead of owning all of ESG. And that's the conversations we have a lot with our clients. Like what are your values as a firm and how does some of the ESG framework fit into those values? And so that you can talk about the topic, whether it's environmental, social, or governance in an authentic way and that, not that, boil the ocean and talk about everything. I, I think that's so smart, Mark. I mean, it's such good advice. My skepticism, I think, stems from the unwillingness in some cases to say, look, we're on a journey, right? It, 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 we're not gonna transform this into a different kind of company Overnight, we still have so many stakeholders and a multinational, as you know, I always use the example of companies that spoke up on Black Lives Matter, rightfully, for example, still making political donations to politicians who disagree with them or disagree with the Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. right? So you have to be upfront about that, the journey you're on, that you, you have right. to, where, where you're going and when you expect to get there. Let me ask this, Jen, you said something that I thought was really interesting about people not giving you money <laughs> if they disagree with your ESG performance or your other sort of political actions. Was Wall Street getting, you know, sort of woke on ESG, I think was the key here. And do you think it's widespread on Wall Street now? What, what is the percentage, I guess, of woke investors related mm -hmm. to ESG and some of these issues. You know, Larry Fink, the biggest investor in the world, I get it, right? And some others, is it pervasive or is it situational? Even those who are secret deniers are feeling the peer pressure to move. <laughs> so yeah. 
There are always secret deniers, but the peer pressure is there. But I would also say there's an, there is a new authenticity to it. I'll give you an example. When George Floyd died, I spent whatever weekend after that emailing founders of private equity firms and hedge funds saying, I know you're very aware of this. Are you aware that your employees might actually expect you to engage in this? And I them an example of what we had done at our firm. And I said, I'm, you know, this is very personal and it has to be authentic to your organization, but I wanted to give you a heads up. Not one of them said, what the hell are you talking about? Which by the way, <laughs> that's a great maybe, sign. Yeah. Maybe 18 months before they would have, every one of them, basically the response was, I'm so glad you emailed. This has been on my mind, but I didn't really realize what the expectation will be. Let me work on something. I mean, across the board, that That's is great. I can't even tell you how fundamentally different that is than just a couple of years ago in our business with the clientele we have. So, you know, you always have to assume that the pension funds and the institutions are going to be way ahead because they actually do serve the firefighters or the policemen or the teachers. On the other side of the coin, to see this kind of real authentic behavior is definitely different. So, I agree it's smart to be skeptical about anything you're wading into for the first time, but I really, really see a difference this year, and it's been quite amazing. One of the big differences we've seen in what we're asked to do with a focus on internal communications, what Jen Mm -hmm. is talking about, but on this issue too, Gary and Mike, I think the difference now is we're starting to get data that shows Uh that leaning toward a more sustainable economy actually helps you perform as a business. And we didn't have that that long ago. If you look at our client base, I know in the private equity world, some of our clients see their portfolio companies showing marked improvement in financial performance by as much as 10% when they have a more diverse board of two to three diverse members. That's a big difference. And it's that, those kind of statistics that will help people along in this journey and maybe accelerate it. Yeah. You know, and it's been interesting. There's been a lot of interesting work done at one of your alma maters, University of Chicago, on this very subject, movement of companies based on diverse thought, bringing teams together that are both men and women, as well as from diverse cultures and backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I want to go, I mean, talking about change, I mean, one of the things that seemingly has changed, and you've seen it up close, is given the work you've done in, in, as an investor relations advisor and your strong track record, kind of event-driven advisory work in the areas of M&A and issues management and shareholder activism, I'm curious to get your perspective, Mark in particular, on, on what seems to be an increasing interest by analysts and investors in a company's ESG performance. That is what a company does relative to environment, its impact on social concerns, how it manages its governance. Am I wrong or are we seeing in comparison to like a decade ago, a shift in the ESG space from mere reporting to more active interest by investors? And is it any different in different parts of the world? There's a lot there. So let me unpack a a couple of it. But just for an anecdote, in the private markets world, if you're fundraising, you have to fill out DDQs, due diligence questionnaires. Mm -hmm. And that's usually a laborious task, right? And I would say two to three years ago, the ESG 
form was just a page and pretty easy to fill out. It is now two to three to five pages. And I have heard of clients having to hire as many as three more members of staff just to analyze and report for potential investors. So one, they are being very general and very specific in their asks on how a company is using the ESG framework for investments. So there is a huge demand from the investor base on how a company is actually going to steward their money in an ESG framework. You asked a little bit too about the differences around the world. The because yeah, my Europe sense is that Europe is, 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 is more hypersensitive. It's kind mm-hmm. of growing in the U.S. and Canada. But if there's a birthplace for it, it almost seems like Europe. Yeah. And I would say that in Europe, it's almost companies, it's an ethos within a firm mm-hmm. instead of a program to adopt. And That's we're not there yet across the board in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Many companies do do that. Newsweek just put out a list of the top sustainable businesses companies around the world and Citigroup was number one. It leads a lot of those lists. So at firms like that, it is an ethos. It's the way people think it's just not a program. Mm -hmm. And on the climate front, Europe is way ahead in their thinking and in the programs that they produce. So so what does this likely change under the Biden administration because he's touting a a green economy. Right, right. So what does that mean, both the thrust of what's happening in Europe in terms of investor activity, and as you point out, the Biden administration, what kind of pressure does that put on or, or change does it promote in capital markets? Well, companies are one, pledging for net zero emissions by 2030 or 2050, and that's gaining ground in US. That will, and that's something that Biden has talked about too. That means a big difference in how you operate as a business, which can be initially more expensive, but it means you have to do a lot more research and, mm-hmm. and due diligence on how to improve your operations to, to perform in a more sustainable way. Now, one, one of the areas that, that I mentioned, you know, transaction services and uh, merger and acquisition activity. Curious is, as you guys are looking at your business plans and, and as we begin to see some announcements about new IPOs and, and, and whatnot, are we looking at a market that has some pent-up demand for IPOs? And are we going to see more M&A activity coming out of kind of the post-pandemic economy? And Airbnb. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Amazing. Airbnb, DoorDash. I mean, DoorDash. Are, yeah. Yeah. Is this, a, is this the tip of the iceberg? Are we going to see a lot more? Well, I think, you know, and Mark, you're a bit more of an IR expert than me, but the one thing that has suffered in the COVID world has been due diligence, right? Mm. It's been hard to do real deep due diligence physically on, on assets. So I, I can only think that once we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel here, we will see more deal activity. You know, I will say though, there've been all kinds of different trends in public markets like SPACs. I think, you know, the the firm has launched 20 SPACs in the last couple of months, you know, and this is a vehicle that always existed, but because of a lot of dynamic, it's much more popular now. So we're just seeing that as sort of a more popular way to for some companies to enter the public markets. Mark, do you want to comment on the the M&A trends? Yeah, sure. I did, well, on the IPO question, I mean, it's been phenomenal and the 
the money that's being raised is incredible. But I just saw a headline right before we logged on here that they expect the IPO trend to steady a little bit after this run up, maybe in the second quarter on. So this could be end of year activity, taking Wait. advantage of the euphoria in the marketplace. Yeah. And some fear on taxes, tax changes. I know that all of our clients did scenario planning on, you know, taxes. And I think if it was a it blue president, blue Senate, there would have been more freakouts in our client base in terms of what will happen to capital gains taxes and all, you know, taxes drive more decision-making than we all think. We exactly, exactly. Uh, taxes are at the basis of, of everything. So I think that the feeling now is it's more going to be more balanced and maybe not ex extreme, but I think some folks are going to take advantage of year-end guarantees. So Jen and Mark, we're talking a lot about change here. And full disclosure, I do a little work with your firm and have in GE when I was at GE over the years. I've always thought one of the things I liked about your firm so much is the environment and that people actually feel like good about working <laughs> at your agency. I mean, it, it, it shows in, in the discussions that we have, it, it always comes through when they're talking about the kind of work that they do at your place. And, and so your office has been closed and like many others, how has that changed? Do you think the, the life and sort of culture of the firm? Our number one obsession is culture. It always has been. I believe that the success of the firm is completely and utterly linked to that culture. And if we messed that culture up, the company would not be the same. So and, you know, we describe that culture in many ways. We call ourselves an army of entrepreneurs, for instance. This year, we've always loved these words, but this year, the words grit, hustle, and humanity have been really <laughs> our mantras. And the humanity part is a big deal in our culture. And so the nice thing about us, I always say to our colleagues, is in the acceleration of COVID, we just had to turn up what was already there, turn mm -hmm. up entrepreneurial and turn up the grit, hustle, and humanity. So I actually say that one of the nice things about COVID is I think the company shrank. I don't mean by like layoffs in size. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're 225 people and I feel like we're a small company again because, nice. you know, what my colleague Russell Sherman calls meeting equality. You know, no one feels like, oh, I'm not in the New York office HQ, you know, <laughs> everyone, the London office, the Boston office, the LA office, the Connecticut office. Everybody feels like they're on the same level, same page, and we are seeing each other more. Now, granted, we're communicators, so we know how to behave in a crisis. Instead of having a monthly all hands, we have a weekly one. And Absolutely. we tell everyone what we won, what we lost, what's going on, why it's going on, and we have a case study every week. And you'd think we'd run out of content. Oh my God, it's been so content rich because the world is content rich. We used to have a partner meeting like once every couple of months. We have one every day at five every single wow. day. And we've decided like, wow, we love this. We love this. We didn't, you know, we're not going to turn some of these things off when, when we go back to normal. So I would say, listen, there are other things that are harder. I've been completely blown away. For instance, like our college graduate class, we call them the PAs. You know, these people, they bond like, oh my God, you look at Instagram. It's like, they're all in each other's wedding. They live together. They vacation together. And I, <laughs> and I actually felt like I'm like, I would say ProSex a friendship factory and it's something I'm so proud of. But I was like, wow, in the virtual world are the PAs gonna bond like that? I've Zoomed with all of them. They are as tight 
as anything than, than the physical world. So some things have really shocked me in terms of like what you can and can't do in this world, but culturally speaking, my, so funny, my daughter says I'm annoyingly committed. <laughs> Jen is holding up a sign that says that. Yes, right now. He's wearing a sandwich board that says that. <laughs> writing about it at LinkedIn because it was such a moment. I just two seconds because it's funny. So again, in the silver linings of COVID every Sunday, you know, I never, I've never been home as much, right? You have to find things to do every Sunday. She and my brother and uh, me, we all, we go fishing right at Sunday. We've done it every Sunday for two hours and we've caught some amazing, amazing fish. But last weekend, you know, I was like, let's do it again. And everyone's like, no, it's too cold. We go down there. It's freezing. Everyone's <laughs> casting into the like cold wind. My daughter's 13. She wanted to kill me. And she's like, mommy, you are annoyingly committed to everything. <laughs> I, said, you know I can 100% attest to that. <laughs> I, said I to had her, to go fishing with Jen. She made me go up to Connecticut. <laughs> Mark caught some big fish. But what was cool about that, I'm like, Scout, I know you meant that as an insult, but I am taking that. I am, <laughs> I am annoyingly committed to our culture and I'm annoyingly committed to the idea that, you know, if you did this right, your culture, you could come out better. The other thing is, Interesting. I talent will judge. Talent will judge the companies that turned up the humanity, that turned up the, the things to keep the culture and the community safe. And I think you're gonna see a lot of movement, we already do, but we're gonna see a lot of movement when people are less worried to move because they are gonna judge their companies on how they- completely. Culturally in the crisis. Yeah. yeah, and I think that may be the biggest change other than some of the technological things, this cultural change we're gonna see coming out of the, the pandemic. By the way, where do you fish in Connecticut? In Easton, where my brother lives. Is it in the sound or is it in? I'm not killing. It's a oh, okay. All right. <laughs> it's a secret spot. I think, uh, uh, Jerry, I, I think she stocks it because I, <laughs> I'm not a fisherman. I'm catching fish every time I throw my line into the water. I'm like, wait a minute. There's something wrong with this water here. <laughs> or right with this water. <laughs> Can you see that? Wow. She's bass. holding up a giant fish. I don't know. I'm not a fisherman either. That is a largemouth bass. That is a whopper. That is a largemouth bass. Yeah, wow. it's huge. Oh, fantastic. Okay. But I'm just going to talk a little bit out of school because this is all about PR. Jen also showed me how to properly manage that photo so the fish looks bigger. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I think this is a true confession. <laughs> I think the other thing, Jen, on culture. Oh, there we go. Isn't that great? It is great. Oh, there's a picture of Mark with a largemouth bass, too. That's a perch. Outstanding. That's a perch? perch. Oh, see, there you go. There you go. They're all just fish to me. <laughs> I think I'll try to get back to the culture question for a second. I think what's been interesting to see during this time is we've had to pivot so quickly, so many times. And when you have to do that as an organization, it's very energetic and it's very positive. And you focus on what needs to be done and not so much what's nice to be done. Right. Jen may be annoyingly committed, but she is very good at inspiring everyone <laughs> to pivot 
And we had a campaign called Pivot to Productivity because we have a campaign name for everything because we're communicators. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thinking about pivoting, I mean, I think about when did you start this firm? Out of college with Uh, it's actually a great GE story because I graduated college in a recession with my 75 PR internships and no one would hire me. So I had to move into my parents' house and network. And I met this guy who was a senior comms person at GE Capital. And no offense, GE really didn't like it there. (laughs) (laughs) That was in the Gary Went days. And, you know, he's like, I'm going to start this thing. I already have some gigs on the side. And, you know, my thought bubble was like, I'm not working for this guy in like the suburbs. I mean, everything about it just seemed like, terrible for college graduates (laughs) but I did join him and that was the beginning so I always say I have a very boring resume because I've been in in one place but but you know the the thing that fascinates me is that you've morphed and grown with the times and I'm kind of curious as to given the kind of times we've been through what's next yeah what's next I think we were smart and got lucky a little bit too you know we identified years ago pre-financial crisis that the entire financial world would wake up and do things differently one day. And that means get off the back foot and get on the front foot and get responsible and proactive about their brand and their reputation and all this stuff. Because when we started, I mean, I'd have to convince a financial institution they need anyone to do communications outside of tell reporters to go away. That was the job. And we were like, that makes no sense. Look at what consumer companies do. And we just built this weird firm around this idea that one day, one day they'll actually value this stuff. Mm -hmm. Post-financial crisis, the entire financial world started to get the, you know, the notion that maybe we should do things differently. Right. So I call, you know, our firm traffics, the emerging market of marketing. It is still an emerging market, our industry, the, the deals and the crisis and all that stuff, that's been done forever and done well, and hopefully we do it very well. But what's not been done well is like, what does your brand stand for? What is the purpose of your firm? What is your corporate character? These are all like, again, this is all new. So what I see for us is we are sort of mining the emerging market of marketing, and we are going to take this whole industry up a few notches. I think in the future, you will not see much of a difference between a financial institution and a consumer company, meaning the way they behave, their understanding. But think about it. If our world is emerging market of marketing, where is it the emerging market of DNI and ESG? And Mm -hmm. our clients need a lot and they need it. So that I think is very good news for the next few years of our firm, I think. So I just sort of see, I just wrote a piece, I think for Arthur Page on like, if 2020 was like getting talk into action and 2021 will be, the bar is just going to go whoop and just, yep. you're going to, so anyway, so those are some of the predictions I see, at least in our world. As communicators, what's exciting is that like, look at the world of ESG and DNI. This is an emerging topic, right? To be able to start at the very beginning with companies and have them figure out how to tell their story and just make them aware that being committed to the journey and emphasizing that message is the first step and it's extremely, extremely important. You still get credit at this stage to be committed to the journey. Yeah. And then we can start filling in what does that mean? Yeah. 
You know, in philanthropy, you can't be committed to the journey. That's a time-honored American institution. <laughs> you have to show what you're doing in philanthropy. But in right. ESG and responsible investing, you can just illustrate how you're committed and how you're going to make progress. Now, one of the things I was surprised with, I didn't have cognition of, in sort of prepping for this interview is found out that you guys are now like in the, in the book promotion business. Wow. So talk a little bit about how you got there. Totally by accident. Um, <laughs> and by the way, I but they're say, very good at it. Let's, uh... I did not want to be in the book promotion business. But <laughs> what happened really is my brother's an author and an artist. And because he's very successful at it, and I'm competitive, I had to have a couple books too. So I have a couple books. So I have this like odd understanding of this product. <laughs> but the book publicity business, no offense to the people in it, is 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 a tough business. We do not really want to be in, but we've been working with Bridgewater and Ray Dalio for 10 years. And his radical truth and transparency culture became so fascinating that a book made sense. And we didn't really want to work on it because we thought that would be a nightmare, but we had to. And Ray's book, for good reason, became a bestseller. And so when you have sort of someone like that on your roster who has a bestselling book, you get really interesting phone calls. So we are, you know, very picky about the projects we take on. They have to be, they actually have to just excite our employees. But we also yeah. wrote Sportsman's book, and we've done a few others. And of course, we're working with Gary on Jeffrey Inmelt's book, which I think will be it, it is a fantastic book and it's just such a great story and an interesting, interesting piece of work. Our team is very, very passionate about it. Jen, I, I have to admit, I said in a recent interview, so for some reason, somebody wanted to interview me. I, I don't know why. Going forward, I think firms are going to have to be more generalists. Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, the firms that specialize and I'm thinking, we just do internal, we just do financial. Right. Am I right or am I way off the mark? I think you're right. See, some people often ask me, isn't it a risk that you're in one? We're not really in one industry, but we're known for financial services. And I say not really, because if you look at our product and service mix, we're doing everything for them. We're writing the DNI programs in addition. Exactly. To yeah. And we're doing the ESG. We're doing the IR. We're doing the PR. We're doing the brand. We're doing the corporate identity. We just hired a very fancy chief creative officer to take our whole marketing thing to the next level. And by the way, in financial services, they don't want multiple firms. They want one. Yes. So we are actually in a really amazing space. But I also think from a professional development standpoint, I always tell people, even if you're really good at deal work, you should get on a digital project. Right. If you're really good at brand, you should get on a crisis because being able to be flexible and dangerous across the board as a consultant is what you have to be. So I basically agree with you, Gary. I, I think people want a specialist from sometimes from an industry standpoint, because mm -hmm. some of these industries like healthcare and finance are complex and they've got rules and regulations and it takes forever to understand that. But I don't think specializing in one zone of communications is it's not what I would choose. Exactly. So one last question here and specific to that is we've talked a lot about the new hybrid world that we're in, that your firm is in, and, and certainly at BU in our teaching, and Mike is experiencing in his work at Enbridge. What words of advice would you have for people going forward in this world, your clients, professional managers, et cetera? 
What do you think is important for 2021, at least for the near term, although some vaccines are being given today, I guess, in the U.S.? Seems like we're in it for a while. Just to plug my LinkedIn newsletter, <laughs> in volatile times, I just wrote about this a little bit. I think, look, look one of my, our clients likes to say, let's return to better. I think we need to take all the things we learned and make sure we don't lose them. And I think that leadership has to be flexible in looking at what people have learned through this and what they really want. I do believe that it will be very difficult, you know, talk about it, just yet another leadership challenge to lead firms and cultures when some people are in and some people are out. Some people go to the conference, some people don't. Some people are comfortable with this, some people are comfortable with that. Some people are vaccinated, some people aren't. That have and can and cannot, I call it the can and cannot world. Right. I think that's going to be very difficult because human beings tend to symbolize physicality in certain ways. Showing up means I care. Being in the office around the leader means I'm seen. What do we do with that when half the world isn't like operating that way? So I'm trying to really figure that out because I actually think leadership is never easy, but leading in a world where we're all locked down and we're all functioning this way, that's a cakewalk. Yeah. In a world where that craziness is happening, that chaos is happening and getting keeping your culture tight where we don't have meeting equality anymore. I think that is going to be a real challenge. And I wish I had all the advice, but I did give five points of advice in my LinkedIn newsletter. So go ahead and read say it. Say the name, <laughs> say the name again, because I think I talked over you, Jen. Yeah, the no, name of Leadership in Volatile Times. And LinkedIn is now doing newsletters, as you know. So I wanted yep. to experiment with it for my clients to say, is this worthwhile? They promote the heck out of your newsletters. And what's interesting is if someone opts into your newsletter, they obviously care about what you have to say. So exactly. the engagement levels on a newsletter are huge. So I've been blown away by the by the stats. Well, thank you. That one, I'll take a look. And I can personally say I've benefited from Jen's advice and Mark's advice as well, too. Just two of my favorite people, really, I've run across in all my time working in this crazy business. So thank you for being on The Crux. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.